America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage One, online accounting software designed to create freedom for small businesses to succeed. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Veris Age Institute colleague and co-host, I might add, Ed Klass. Welcome, Ed. How are you? I'm good, Ron. I got a question for you. Fire away, sir. All right. How much does the economy weigh? Dang. I mean, there's got to be a lot of trans fats in the economy. So <laughs> I'm thinking it weighs lots. I mean, well, I, didn't, I didn't mean people, Ed. We, we know they've gotten <laughs> probably heavier over the time. But let, let me, in the spirit of last week's show, let me put that into some context. How much do you think the economy weighs today compared to 1950? By the way, this was a question that Alan Greenspan used to use on audiences to completely stump them. Yeah, I, I really have no idea how much the economy weighs. I just have no clue. W- would you guess heavier, lighter, the same? Oh, because- oh yeah, you come here to 1950, I, it's got to it's be heavier than 1950. Got to be. That, that's exactly, when I first read this, that's exactly what I thought. I mean, he, he, you know, he just gives one example of the SKUs, Right, the stock keeping units of just New York City uh, being ten to the ten power, right? Just in New right. York, but the the answer Ed is it it weighs the same, even though output compared to today or even the time the Greenspan did this, which was I don't know two thousand or something, it, it it's seven times more the output in in real dollars than it was in nineteen fifty, and yet it weighs the same. Dang. Okay, so you're talking about basically like, okay, because now a book isn't a book. It's a Kindle thing and music. So, I mean, well, all right. Now, now, it's starting to make sense now if you, if you switch to the digital thing. Right. If you compare atoms to bits, right, the atom being the physical world or, uh, you, you know, the bits being the uh, digital world, I guess, or right. the atoms being the physical world. But, yeah, we can put an entire library on a little nano iPod or whatever and think about a jukebox or think about your old record collection or think about all the newspapers that used to be delivered on everybody's doorstep and now you just go online and read them. Mm-hmm. And like you said, books. So I, I, I found that to be very interesting. But what it does illustrate is something that, I mean, this goes back to Adam Smith and some of the other of these economists that we talk about, that the real economy is in, is in mind. It's 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 not in atoms. It's not in physical things. It, it's in our minds, and that's really the point. Hence the title of our show, Ron. Right, economy in mind. As and you debated me on this when we were talking about this. It's not of mind, but in mind, specifically because of that reason. 
Well, that reason and another, which we'll we'll talk about probably a little bit later in the show, and I, I definitely want to justify that. Uh, but I also would like to point out this, uh, you know, Thomas Sowell, uh, who you know, Ed, is one of my favorite all-time economists. I, I think he's a fantastic historian of economic ideas, and he wrote a great book in 1996 called Knowledge and Decisions, and he said this, after all, the caveman had the same natural resources at their disposal as we have today. And the difference between their standard of living and ours is a difference between the knowledge they could bring to bear on those resources and the knowledge used today. When I read that, I was like, wow, what an interesting way to think about it. You know, I mean, the caveman had oil, but he didn't have a combustion engine. So what what, what created the combustion engine was man's creativity, imagination, and, and knowledge. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess up until the, the late 1800s, oil was a problem to be dealt with, right? It was it, it came up through the through the the fields and the gook. We need to get rid of the gook, you know. So yeah, right. it, it was a nuisance if you were a farmer and you didn't know what to do with this guy. And and like we say, if if we ever find a replacement for oil, its value is going to go back to zero. I mean, we used to use whale oil. You know, until Rockefeller saved the whales, you won't see Greenpeace giving him any credit for it, but he certainly did. Yep. No, absolutely. Yeah. And and the other thing is, you know, you go back to your example of New York City, you know, New York City, my hometown, the the reason why all of the the homes uh, in, in the in the in Manhattan are up on a stoop is because to, to get over the smell from, from the horse dung. <laughs> that's <you> know, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. That's wild. So, you know, if you, if you just think a sweep of history real quick, you know, obviously we were a hunter gatherer economy at one point, and then we transformed into an agrarian economy. And then of course we had the industrial revolution. And then sometime around, I believe in the 1920s, we became a service economy. And in 1959, Peter Drucker, along with another economist, identified a trend that was happening. And they actually coined the term separately, the knowledge economy. And of course, that's the subtitle of our show, Business and the Knowledge Economy. So we wanted to take some time to explain what exactly that means and, and how profound and tectonic I think that shift is, Ed. Well, sure. I mean, going back to your example of the the stages of society, the can you imagine what was the carbon footprint of early man? I mean, when you when you have hunter gatherer, <laughs> right, with right. the amount of land that you need in in order to sustain a, a small population is just is just enormous, right? And then it wasn't until man then tamed tamed that. The surroundings and, and became a, a, an agrarian. He said, "You know, can you imagine that the conversation between Og and Grog? You know, yes. all right, uh, Grog, I got a, th- this idea. We're just going to stay here all winter, but we're going to save some of the seeds, and we're just going to plant it in front of the cave next next year when you know the spring comes around. Og's got to be like, yeah, dude. <laughs> <laughs> right. Good luck with that. Uh, the, the, me and the rest of the crew, we're we're moving." <laughs> So, uh, so this is the, again. We talked a little bit about this on previous shows, but this was the risk, right? The high, the, the the high risk that the first entrepreneurs, in this case farmers, were taking. Right. Exactly. And and you know when we think, sometimes you hear today the description, oh, we're in an information economy. 
And I think this kind of goes back to that guy, Stuart Brand, who, you know, the founder of the Whole Earth Catalog. He's, he's kind of an icon uh, out here in California because I think he's from here. But he, he, his line is, you know, information wants to be free, right? And, and we certainly see that on the web today. However, there's a big difference, isn't there, between information and knowledge, a huge difference. I think there's a huge difference between those two things. In fact, the way that I kind of – and I extrapolated this from from Peter Drucker I, I, when I teach a, a class, and this is mostly a, a, about implementation, but it really really doesn't matter uh, in this context, is that um, the, bo- the base of this pyramid is data, right? All companies have data, lots and lots of data. Now, before computers, this data existed on, you know, index cards and paper throughout the system, but they all had this data. And then on top of the data, we then had information. And then that information is really a subset of the data, right? When we go and any kind of most reports that business owners get would be an information type report. So they're, they're sure. seeing, yeah, they're seeing the uh, trial balance and all of this stuff. So those, are, those, are, those would be the, the information type reports. Like a financial statement. A financial <laughs> statement, yeah. Any, yeah. Anything, most things that come out of computer systems. But there are, and I think this is getting to your point, there is a difference then between information than what I will call a knowledge report because there, there, there can and be reports that come out of systems that I think are knowledge-based. And the way I have defined it, and I know this is probably not exactly correct, but it's, it's knowledge is information to which you've applied some kind of a theory or thinking. Right. So the example, two examples I'll use here, I think, on a practical basis for business owners out there is any kind of a cash flow projection report. Right. That's that is that's that's a knowledge report, because what you're doing is you're basing it on a theory. Well, if we get paid in the average days to pay and we're going to pay our people on time, then this is what the cash flow is going to look like. So the theory, of course, is, is that we're going to get paid in an average days to pay and we're going to pay our people, right? Then the other one that I think a lot of people use in a CRM system is a sales projection or a pipeline report. You know, it says, okay, here's the, here's the date. This is the, the, the deal that the, the size of the deal, $50,000. This is the date we think it's going to close. And this is the, the, the percentage chance that we think this has of actually closing. And if you take all of those in aggregate, right, you can actually kind of project theor- theoretically what your revenue is going to be for a given pyramid uh, period. So that that's the would be example of knowledge. And then by the way, on the top of the pyramid, I put wisdom and, and right. I don't think we'll ever. I don't think we'll ever get to wisdom reports. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. No, the, I, I like that definition. That I liked uh, applying a theory to information, kind of can turn it into knowledge. Because data, and and to some extent, even information is only by definition about the past, right? And maybe something, and this is something that George Gilder loves to say. Knowledge. He even says knowledge is about the past, but entrepreneurialism is about the future and and that's where we get dynamism and innovation and all of that but just to just to bounce off what you said the way and mine is much more simplistic than yours but the way i used to explain the difference between data information and knowledge was saying look if all you had in front of you was a list of phone numbers with no context no names just phone numbers that would be data if you had yellow pages you know, they gave it some context and names, addresses, businesses, all of that. Then, yes, that's information. But then if you start asking people for word of mouth recommendations about plumbers or this or that, then that's more that's more knowledge. 
Okay. And that's that's kind of the simple way that I used to think about it. Right. So th- and so talk about this knowledge is not free then. Yeah, you know, and 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 again, uh, another uh, great uh, line from Thomas Sowell's book, Knowledge and Decisions. He says the most severe constraint facing human beings in all societies and throughout history is inadequate knowledge for making the decisions that each individual and every organization has to make. And and that's fascinating because it, it really is a constraint. I mean, knowledge is actually kind of very expensive. Yep, and, and what I want to point out here, though, because this is important, I see, I, and I see this, and I know someday we'll do a show on this, is that when, when, when Solis here is talking about knowledge, he's not talking about data. Correct. Right? He's not talking about data, and that's why I wanted to make that distinction earlier, because I, I see a lot of people in, in the, the customers that we work with, they, they have this, this, this fixation on data. Like if we just have more and more data, that that's a, somehow a substitute for knowledge. And if you go with the idea that knowledge is really information to which you're applying a theory, well, no, no amount of data is ever going to solve that. You still have to apply thinking and a theory and your belief about the future to any decision that you're going to make in any kind of context. Right. I think, Ed, not to, not to get off the topic here, but I think this is one of my problems with the whole big data craze is it's great to analyze, you know, all these billions of bits of data, but it just it, it's a reflection of the past. It doesn't necessarily tell us our future. We can't collect data on something that's new. Correct. Now, Let's, let's be cautious here because I think a lot of people say, oh, you're against big data. No. No. <laughs> what, no. We're, what we're against is the over-obsession with looking at the data and not making some predictive assumptions a- a- about the future, right? Correct. Because that's what, that's what people get hung up on. What we're seeing and saying is that people sometimes get s- stuck uh, in this obsession with data, I think it's almost in some cases like a substance abuse problem, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it really is. It really is. So anyway, after after the break, um, we're going to talk more about this. We're going to go and, and turn our attention to the, the physical fallacy and what that all means. And uh, we look forward to having you back. And if you want to email us, TSOE at Verisage.com. Are you interested in the topics discussed on The Soul of Enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose, Measure What Matters to Customers, and his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E and follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. As an entrepreneur, you're on an adventure, but there are parts of your business like revenue and expenses that don't feel very adventurous. At Sage One, we get it. We give you tools like easy invoicing, simple accounting and reporting so you can tackle your less exciting tasks by automating them. Stronger control of the numbers means more opportunities for profits. Sage One has integrated payment options that can actually increase your cash flow. Getting paid faster? Yes, please. It's time to take the boring out of business and get back in the action. Visit sageone.com today. Your free trial is waiting. Do you work in, lead, or own a professional firm? 
Do you like what you hear from Ron and Ed on the Soul of Enterprise? Come see them live at the Affinia Manhattan Hotel in New York City on August 14th and 15th at the Sage Firm of the Future Symposium. Ron and Ed will help you and your organization make the transformation to a modern professional knowledge firm, one that is paid for value, not time. Visit Verisage.com forward slash firm for more details. That's Verisage.com forward slash firm. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we're back. Just uh, want to let you know that in addition to the soul of enterprise tweeting, you can also t- uh, tweet us at pound T-S-O-E, so any Twitter feeds, and we are monitoring that pound T-S-O-E feed, so feel free to tweet us and let us know what you think of the show. On the way back, we said that we were going to talk about the physical fallacy, and one of my favorite stories is about that is Merv Griffin and the, the, the theme song to Jeopardy, and Merv Griffin was the producer of the show. And when they, this is when Jeopardy first came on, I think back in the, I guess, 60s it was. It was it's, somebody said, well, we, we, we need some music for the, the, the time when people are writing down their answers during Final Jeopardy. So Merv being the savant that he was, sits down at the piano and he you know, knocks out, na, 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 na. I, I think his estate is still getting checks. Uh, and last last I checked, Ron, it was between seventy and eighty million dollars just from the theme song. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> it tells you the power of an idea, and I think this is one of the most possibly counterintuitive points that economists have been making for centuries: is that real wealth does not reside in physical things. It resides in imagination, creativity, and innovation ideas, if you will rather than things that are just physical. And I know it, it kind of runs against our intuition, doesn't it? It, it sure does. But it, it, but it, we see it over and over again in business. I mean, just recently, WhatsApp, right, was bo- bought for, I don't know, 17-something billion dollars. WhatsApp was was four guys and, and a contract programmer in Georgia, the country, not the state. Right. I mean, <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah, I, when you ha- when you can create a company with what fifty employees or whatever it was in total that they had, and and be bought for seventeen billion dollars, you know that might be more than the market cap of Boeing or some other you know massive company. That tells you the world has definitely changed from an atom to a digital or bit type economy for, to an economy in mind. One of my favorite examples, Ed, is the uh, is if you just look at Gone with the Wind, right? I mean, here's a movie. It's on whatever on tape, or it's it was produced in 1939. Would you rather have the rights or own that movie, or would you rather have? I don't know. Think of the most expensive car from 1939, which, by the way, I had to look that up because I was fascinated. And there, sure enough, the most expensive car is uh, an Auto Union Type D. Audi Grand Prix that's, <laughs> that's sold for roughly 12 million euros. Uh, but even that, I'd rather have the Gone with the Wind. 
And yet here, you know, that, but that's just an idea. That's just service. I mean, it, it, it's not something physical, and yet it contains much more wealth. Absolutely. And, and there's just example after example of this. And, and the way we want to bring this down to, the, the, I think, the everyday thought process in businesses is we, we have to make sure that we carve out some time for, for, for ideas, for thinking, for, for, first of all, growing our knowledge our intellectual capital, which we'll talk more about later, but allowing people to to think about things to create some of these ideas and, and give it a, and give it a shot. Right. And I think that's what, you know, Einstein, when he said imagination is even more important than knowledge. Isn't that where all innovation comes from? Imagination or tinkering around or just dreaming. And that's how we get all these great new products and services. It, right, and and the, the the key is is that these these ideas when they're they're shared, even if even if a particular idea is bad, it doesn't mean that once somebody talks about it or speaks about it that it that it can't be improved upon by by somebody else who says, well, that might not work, but if we tweak it a little bit here, it would could potentially turn into this whole other thing. So we, we need to make sure that we're doing that. And I think that's buried a lot in businesses today. I think we, you know, just sit there, do your job. Don't talk, don't, don't give us any thoughts. And, you know, we got to keep those young millennials in check, Ron, because they keep coming up with these ideas and thinking <laughs> around us. Right, right. The old joke in the factory, in the Henry Ford factory was, hey, you guys, stop talking and get to work. But in the knowledge economy, it, it may be the exact opposite. It might be, hey, guys, get to work, start talking. Absolutely. Be- because when you start talking with each other, it's it's kind of like ideas having sex. I love that phrase. It's Matt Ridley, right? Yeah, the, the rational optimist. Uh, you, you bring up another really interesting point, Ed, uh, that – you know, if you think about knowledge, the, the way I first heard this described is it's a non-rival asset as opposed to, say, a rival asset. If I give you the tie off my, my shirt, well, that's a rival asset. Now you have it and I don't. But if I give you an idea or knowledge, now we both have it. I don't lose it when I give it to you. And now you can take it, improve upon it, tweak it, make it more valuable for your organization or your customers. And, and, I, and, and then it might even come back to me in some type of form. In other words, there's no law of diminishing returns with knowledge. The more you give it away, the more it actually increases. Yeah. I mean, even, even Thomas Jefferson recognized this. He, he talked about the idea of a candle. If you, take, if you take my entire candle from me, then I don't have light. But if I just light your candle with mine, well, then we both have light and it doesn't diminish mine either. And, and this is so hard for people to get their mind around because the law of diminishing returns is so entrenched in business thinking today. And I think we get stuck on that, thinking that you know, we have to protect these ideas. Right. I wonder if that goes back to you know caveman times where, hey, if you got to the berries first, there was less for me. But that's not the way it works with knowledge. No, it's, the, it's almost the exact opposite. But it, but it is. It's not obvious. And, you know, the phrase, of course, that, that is counterintuitive, right? It's counterintuitive. But, right. uh, you know, we, we, we I think and, and it's not, you know, we, this is a lot of smart people. We, we've talked about economists for the last couple of shows on this, but they didn't see this coming, this, this economy of the idea. They, they didn't see the knowledge economy coming. I mean, they, they, Adam Smith and all these, they, they believed in this diminishing return stuff because, quite honestly, that's the way it had been for millennia. Right. I mean, if everything's around you is in, represented in atoms, then it's hard not to think that the, the world is, is kind of zero sum. 
but uh, it, it's turned out not at all like that, and it's definitely an economy in mind. Absolutely. Well, we, I mean, we have example after example of this, but but let's let let's talk a little bit about something that that you a book that you recently read, Ron. And I don't think we're going to have to be able to get through the whole thing in this segment, so we'll probably start and come back. But uh, talk about the class project. Yes, you know, there's a, an economist to illustrate how knowledge is dispersed throughout the economy. You know, no one of us is smarter than all of us, and and how a free market. Uh, handles knowledge is is one of the absolutely amazing things about it and to make this point there's a economics professor at George Mason University who assigns a class project to his undergrad econ students and he says I want you to make something from scratch that you normally buy now you could imagine a bunch of college students they're going to do things like you know maybe a radio maybe an mp3 player a lot of them do beer <laughs> gee imagine that and what they figure out, Ed, is that, hey, not only is this a pain and it takes a lot of time and a lot of shoe leather and driving to get all these things, but it costs a fortune and the quality is awful. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I can just imagine that. By, by the way, a quick side note there. I, if um, my, my, my wife is a Texas A&M Aggie, so you know, my, we're gr- grooming my son for Texas A&M, but there's this secret hope that he ends up going to George Mason University, too. So that's, I, that's, oh, good, <laughs> good. That's good. <laughs> I vote George Mason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. But, but so there's t- no baseball team there, is there? <laughs> no, there's no fo- f- football. See, you know, it's, it's ah, football. Okay. <laughs> All right, but so a toaster from scratch, a toaster from scratch, that's what this guy ended up doing? Yes, this this guy wrote a book. His name is Thomas Thwaites, and he uh, was a design student in London. And he wrote this book called The Toaster Project. And I just got done finished. Uh, I just got done reading this, and it's just a great book. The first thing he says is, "Well, I wanted to to make something from scratch, so I just picked a typical run of the mill household appliance, a toaster." So he goes down to an appliance store, and he his logic is. If I pick the cheapest toaster, that'll have the fewest parts and it'll be the easiest to replicate. So he buys a toaster for, I don't know, it's like four pounds, right? It's like eight bucks roughly. And he takes it apart. And there's something like 157 parts in this toaster. But if you can even start to break down those and you, and now all of a sudden you're at over 400 parts. And he said there was 38 different minerals or materials, 17 were metal, 18 plastic. I mean, it goes on and on and on with all the different types of components in this thing. And the other thing he said was, it's not really true that we can make anything from scratch. And, and this is the line uh, that really stuck with me, Ed, from the book. He quoted Carl Sagan and Carl Sagan said, well, if you, if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, the first thing you have to do is invent the universe. So, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's probably not realistic to think you can make a toaster from scratch. You run into all these problems. Well, can I use electricity and all of this, right? Because then that, do I have to go make my own electricity. But given those parameters, he went out. He, went out, he spent nine months. He traveled 1,900 miles. He went to different mines up in Scotland and Ireland to get, you know, metal. He even contacted British Petroleum to get some petroleum to make the plastic for the outer cover. And, and he goes into detail on how he did all this. And he's got pictures in his book. And it's a, it's a great book. I really enjoyed it. And at the end of the day, it cost him $1,837. And it took him nine months. And it didn't work. <laughs> 
And we're talking a, a toaster that you and I can walk into Target and buy for eight bucks. Wow. Wow. And it's, it, it, it's just an incredible story, and it just shows you how dependent we are, even for something as simple as a toaster. And there's a great essay, uh, and, and, and this book was kind of in the spirit of that essay, and the essay is by a guy named Leonard Reed, and it's called I Pencil. And it's written in the voice of a pencil. And it basically starts out by saying, as a pencil, nobody in the world knows how to make me. Now, that sounds like an astonishing statement, but it's not. Millions and millions of people <clears throat> are needed to make a pencil and everything that goes in it. Yeah, I mean, and, and this goes back to the, the other thing that we, we I mentioned, Matt Ridley points this out in his book, Rational Optimist, this idea that a, a hand axe and a computer mouse – are effectively they look the same. Show a picture of them. It, you, you, you from a distance you couldn't necessarily tell one versus the other, especially if it's a wireless mouse, right? But they fit the human. They're designed to fit the human hand. The big difference, of course, is, is that the hand axe would be could be something that could be crafted by one person, and maybe there was you know specialists in hand axe building or making, right? But but ultimately could be created by one person, and the knowledge for that was then passed on from person to person to person, and it was but as a one-to-one relationship. But it wasn't until we realized that, well, if when we're beginning to, to share this stuff, this idea of this this knowledge that is shared increases, were we able to create the computer mouse, which, I mean, similar to the, your, your toaster or, or iPencil, there, there's no way that an individual could possibly make it. Right, well, right. When, when we get back from the break, we will talk a little bit more about rival versus non-rival assets, and then we're going to talk in some detail about the components of intellectual capital or knowledge that we've talked about after the break. Please, though, email us at tsoe at verisage.com or hashtag tsoe for those of you on Twitter. work in, lead, or own a professional firm? Do you like what you hear from Ron and Ed on the soul of enterprise? Come see them live at the Affinia Manhattan Hotel in New York City on August 14th and 15th at the Sage Firm of the Future Symposium. Ron and Ed will help you and your organization make the transformation to a modern professional knowledge firm, one that is paid for value, not time. Visit Verisage.com forward slash firm for more details. That's Verisage.com forward slash firm. As an entrepreneur, you're on an adventure. But there are parts of your business, like revenue and expenses, that don't feel very adventurous. At Sage One, we get it. We give you tools like easy invoicing, simple accounting, and reporting, so you can tackle your less exciting tasks by automating them. Stronger control of the numbers means more opportunities for profits. Sage One has integrated payment options that can actually increase your cash flow. Getting paid faster? Yes, please. It's time to take the boring out of business and get back in the action. Visit sageone.com today. Your free trial is waiting. Are you interested in the topics discussed on the soul of enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose. Measure what matters to customers and his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E and follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. 
From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. All right, we are back. And just wanted to mention, because Ron is is very much a, a shy person but and won't say this, but a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here in, is in one of his fantastic books called Mind Over Matter, which when, when I first read it uh, just – blew my mind uh and and it i i I personally think ron it's your best book but let's not we won't go down that (laughs) well i'll say this that it was definitely the hardest book to write because as you know this is a very very complex topic to get your head around because it is so counterintuitive yep no absolutely well, tell us a little bit about I- I- implicit and tacit ass- uh, assets, Ron, because I think that, that's a, a big input into this. Yeah, uh, and, and this was you know, the difference between tacit knowledge and explicit knowledge. Explicit knowledge is something that you can you know, get out of a book. You can get it out of a PowerPoint presentation, a spreadsheet, you know, a, a podcast. That would be an example. A radio show. A radio show. That, that's explicit knowledge. Tacit knowledge is is sticky it's that stuff that's in your head it's all the little tricks of the trade it's the craftsman's way of knowing when to break the rules or or whatever and it's that tacit knowledge that's so expensive right i mean if you're a if you're an expert in something i mean a deep deep expert and you go on to wikipedia now, Wikipedia is a great example of, of, of an incredible database of explicit knowledge. But if you've got a lot of tacit knowledge about a particular topic, you'll see a lot of gaping holes in Wikipedia, won't you? Oh, yeah. No, and, you know, I have a great example of this that I use around my house all of the time. Uh, we, my wife and I were, were staying with friends up in Kansas City. Uh, this is, I don't know, five or six years ago, I suppose. Might be even be longer than this. And at, at one point, you know, we get, we get up and they, we needed to make another pot of coffee, right? So the, the, our, our friend goes to refill the coffee pot. Well, they had positioned their coffee pot in such a way that it was within striking distance of the hose from the sink, right? <laughs> so, so that you could just pull the hose from the sink to fill the coffee pot, the, the, you know, the tank to, to run, the, run, run through and recruit and make the coffee. Well, this is just like struck me as just absolute genius, <laughs> <laughs> it's like this is just. I mean, how, how many times do you have to, you know, go fill the coffee pot, bring it over to the, the dump it in, right? It was just right. and just maddening. No, no, no. You move your coffee pot to within striking distance of the hose. Well, I got to tell you that I've, I've, I think of them first of all every time I do it, which is just about every day. And then also the other thing that's cool is I have done this in front of other people who have said I'm going home and moving my coffee pot. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's the great now, thing about an idea, <laughs> right? And but no expert on making coffee is going to tell you that it, it's not going to be. It's not going to show up in the research anywhere. It's not going to be in the data, right? It, it's kind of you know if I read a book by Tiger Woods or Jack Nicholas on how to play golf their way, that's explicit knowledge. But if you gave me the opportunity to go play around with either of them, that's tacit knowledge because I'm going to get into all sorts of situations that, that aren't explained in their book. 
And, and that's that tacit knowledge. And that's the stuff that's really, really valuable. And that's really what Thomas Sowell was arguing when he said that knowledge is actually the biggest constraint. It's not ubiquitous and it's not free. So we're putting this into into practice in in organizations, small and medium businesses today. I mean, I, th- I think one of the keys is is, is to have, uh, and and you, you you've told me this, Ron, is this this idea of having a chief knowledge officer. Now you might not call them the CKO, but but we need to have somebody who knows what everyone knows, right? There's a quote I think if about HP. Uh, if, if 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 somebody knew what HP knew, we would we would be in really good shape. And they actually tried to solve for that problem by creating some somebody who who knew what they knew. Now this is not someone who's omniscient and omnipresent and knows everything. They just know what other people know. And I think that that's something that every business needs to start to put into practice is who knows what we know around here. Right, because you know, intellectual capital, unlike physical capital or physical assets, uh, because they're non-rival, they can be more, you know, more than one place at one time. We can all read Harry Potter's, you know, book at the same time without diminishing it for anybody else. Then it starts to make sense to think about intellectual capital in, in a breakdown. And, and the, the best uh, best breakdown I've seen is by this guy named Carl Sevby. Uh, he's Australian, I believe. In 1989, he broke out intellectual capital into three components. He said. Every business has human capital, the stuff that gets in the elevator every night and goes home. Every company has structural capital, and you can think of that as everything that stays in the four walls after the people leave. And then you've got social capital, which is the company's customers. A a company's brand is part of its social capital. Alumni, people that they do business with, their vendors and things like that. And I found that framework really, really useful to think about in terms of, you know, how do you leverage? Because knowledge is, is it, it's an entity. It's not a process. It's an entity. And it's the interdependence of these three types of intellectual capital that can really create some serious wealth for your customers. Well, I mean, in a sense, isn't social capital, you know, you, our, your grandmother probably told you it's not what you know, it's who you know, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That is a big part of it. And what's really fascinating, Ed, and this is something that the, the economists back in the day wouldn't have seen as, as dramatically as we see it now, is human capital, according to the World Bank, is 80% of the, wor- the developed world's wealth, 80%. And if you think about it, that means that if you're in a knowledge business, or, or and I would say almost every business has, has got some component of knowledge, but certainly like professional firms, that means 80% of your ability to create wealth resides in your people, and the company does not own them. No, no, not at all. And let me, am I extrapolating this out too much, though? When I, when I heard that 80% thing, I was, I was, completely blown away by it but but the way that i i have internalized it is this and and i'm, I'm curious as do you think if my my thinking is is off but it, if, if that's true if 80 percent of the world's wealth is in our knowledge well that means that if we actually did have a let's call it a systemic financial crisis of absolutely epic proportion where we we lost all financial wealth which I don't think it could possibly happen that we lose all all financial wealth, but let's just just say that 
that we would still, as a, as a species, be able to continue as long as we continue to have our knowledge about the past, right? And that, so we could we could we could sustain that. We could sustain that colossal financial collapse. But what we couldn't sustain would be a, 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 a disease that gives us amnesia. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. If if you think about it, I mean, if if you were to decimate our physical infrastructure, I don't know, like the neutron bomb. What was that bomb that only destroyed? Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It only, uh, it only kills people. people <laughs> but, it, but it keeps the buildings intact. Well, if you yeah. reverse that, the anti whatever it would be. Um, no, we would be able to rebuild as long as you don't lose that knowledge. And and that's what's so key about knowledge is because it it you can't lose it. It, 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 you transfer it and it only grows. And by the way, the World Bank is the entity that did the studies on 80% of the world's wealth residing in human capital. And there's two studies. The first one's called Where is the Wealth of Nations? And the second is The Changing Wealth of Nations. And folks, just so you know, after every show, if you visit verisage.com, you'll see Ed and I's show summary, and we post all the books we mentioned, the reports like this. We'll have links up there uh, on everything that we talked about to give you some additional context and further reading and resources that you can check on. Yeah. It, it, this just it amazes me, though, this, this, this idea that, that 80% is, is in our knowledge. I, I, you know, I, at first I doubted it. I said, ah, that but, but the more and more I think about it, the more I think that it makes complete and total sense. I mean, w- after all, what is a brand, right? But, but knowledge, knowledge that, oh, I, I can trust that. I know that if I'm going to go to a, in a McDonald's, I'm going to get a fast, barely edible meal. But, it, but I'm going to get it fast, Right. right. Yep. And, and, and something else that we should probably mention, too, is not all knowledge is good, right? In fact, not all of these components of intellectual capital are good. Some of them are negative, like there's negative human capital, negative structural capital. And, and the example I love about this is, is Castro's Cuba. I mean, here's a guy who expropriated all the wealth, the physical wealth, thinking, oh, I'm going to make the greatest city in the world. And he ended up doing that, but he did it in Miami because all the human capital left. <laughs> and create, cr- created a great city in Miami and, and left Castro's Cuba to rot because he, he didn't understand. He, he believed in the physical fallacy, basically. Right. And, but, don't, but don't businesses do this to, an, I mean, obviously a much lesser extent than Castro. When, when, when they, they, let's call it castigate, almost try to, the, the people who used to work for them. So, you know, somebody leaves the, the organization and, you know, they, they just become like, you know, it's like, I don't know Mo- Moses in the Ten Commandments. You know, strike Moses's name from every obelisk. Right? They they just <laughs> anything that went wrong in the past ten years, we blame on the guy who just left. Right. And I constantly see this happen. I was like, well, wh- why? I mean, unless the guy or gal was was really a fool, why are we doing this to them? Why aren't we like trying to maintain the relationship long term? Because you never know when this is going to be a, a, an example to, to use social capital that allows us to continue to connect. Absolutely. And, and Ed, for all the, the talk about that we and all the hard times that we give to professional firms, one thing that they do absolutely right, and almost all of them do this, is they maintain an alumni network and they cultivate those relationships. They don't 
castigate you as you leave. They want to, they know you're probably going to go somewhere that can refer them future business and they understand the value of that social capital and they invest in it heavily. I mean, even my prior accounting firm, Pete Marek, has an incredible alumni network that's, that's quite active and actually provides a lot of value. Yeah. It, it, it- I, and I see that all of the time, but, but you know, it, it's funny you say that that uh, the the professional firms get it, which is true in that particular case. But you know where it's not true is that they're among the last to adopt social media, right? True. So that you know, <laughs> which 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 to me is just the most modern form of social capital. That's that's all it is. Is it's a new form of social media. I do social media not because it's cute. But because it's it's it is the I think the best form of social capital that's ever been invented by mankind. Yep, absolutely. And and you know when we come back Ed from this short break, we're we're gonna uh, let's discuss knowledge workers because they're an inter, integral part, obviously, if they're eighty percent of a company's ability to produce wealth. And knowledge workers have some differences between, say, a service worker or an industrial worker. And folks, when we come back, that's what we'll tackle next. So after this quick break, uh, we'll be right back. As an entrepreneur, you're on an adventure. But there are parts of your business, like revenue and expenses, that don't feel very adventurous. At Sage One, we get it. We give you tools like easy invoicing, simple accounting, and reporting, so you can tackle your less exciting tasks by automating them. Stronger control of the numbers means more opportunities for profits. Sage One has integrated payment options that can actually increase your cash flow. Getting paid faster? Yes, please. It's time to take the boring out of business and get back in the action. Visit SageOne.com today. Your free trial is waiting. Are you interested in the topics discussed on The Soul of Enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit Verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose. Measure what matters to customers. And his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E. And follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. Do you work in, lead, or own a professional firm? Do you like what you hear from Ron and Ed on the Soul of Enterprise? Come see them live at the Affinia Manhattan Hotel in New York City on August 14th and 15th at the Sage Firm of the Future Symposium. Ron and Ed will help you and your organization make the transformation to a modern professional knowledge firm, one that is paid for value, not time. Visit Verisage.com forward slash firm for more details. That's Verisage.com forward slash firm. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. 
Welcome back, everybody. And Ed, let's talk about knowledge workers, because we hear this term a lot. Peter Drucker, again, he was the one who coined this term in 1959. He started to see a big influx into the labor force of people who basically work with their minds, not their muscles. And he coined the term knowledge workers. And what makes the knowledge worker unique, as say, opposed to an industrial worker or service worker, is the biggest thing, and it's certainly not the only thing, but I think that the defining thing is they own the means of production and, and what a tectonic shift that is. I mean, if I, used, if I worked for Henry Ford back in the day, he owned the means of production. I went into his factory. I worked to the rhythms and cadences of his assembly line. But today, you know, I, I don't have to go into an office. I can sit in a Starbucks and do a full day's work, as indeed uh, J.K. Rowling, right, wrote, wrote the first Harry Potter novel sitting in a coffee shop. I mean, that's the difference with knowledge work is you own the means of production. Yeah, and I, I've actually heard it, heard it said that way, that the, the way that you can tell if you're a full-on knowledge worker is instead of bringing your coffee to the office, you can bring your office to the coffee. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, the other point that Drucker made on knowledge workers is the balance of economic power has shifted. Organizations need them more than the knowledge workers need the organizations because obviously these people have 80% of the capacity to create wealth that, that walks around with them. So the best that companies can do is rent it. So ultimately, these people are volunteers. They're yeah, and I think that the, the, the and this is the distinguishing characteristics that I see between this between the service worker and the service economy and the knowledge economy. Well, those some call it the experience economy, whatever phrase we want. We're, we we've been calling it knowledge, so we'll stick with that. But the, the, this idea that. It, it's the, the, the worker who owns this means of production. In a, in a true service organization, not, let me use the airlines, right, as, a, as an example, or uh, a hotel, uh, it, the, you still have to go to the airport. You still have to go to the McDonald's. You still have to go to the accounting firm or law firm. Uh, well, I'm sorry. You, have to, you still have to go, go to the, the, the place of business. But with an accounting firm, with a law firm, with, a, with, with an IT firm, you don't have to go there anymore, Right. right. And, and so that 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 knowledge that that value is with the person. It's again, it's it's almost it's spiritual, not rather than physical. And, and it's it's much like our when we invest at your four hundred one k or whatever portfolio you have, you you're going to invest your financial capital into those places that you'll get a fair economic return. But we'll, you'll also be treated well. Like you won't invest in Castro's Cuba because he might take your assets away. But it's the same thing for a knowledge worker. They're actually investing their own intellectual capital into a company. And therefore, they're going to go where they're, where they're well compensated, of course, but also where they're treated with respect and dignity. And, and of course, this is our problem with Taylorism, right? He didn't treat the worker with respect and dignity, and he has no place in the knowledge economy. Nope. Now and and look to to just con- continue this thought on this this social capital uh, ideas you know as you are aware Ron Sage the company I work for our conference is next week and I'm this is always my most exciting week at work because I I get a chance first of all to prepare for the the talks that I'm going to do and, and and gain greater knowledge but then I get a chance to share it all with people and to have their knowledge who have been preparing all this stuff be shared back with me so it's like it's like 
like this big explosion of knowledge that I that I quite literally have to spend the next month or two digesting. Right, and it's 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 incredible enhancement to social capital too. Even though I, I mean I haven't attended as many summits of you as you have, but I, I still have relationships with people that I met at summit years ago. Yep. Yep. So very, very good stuff. And, and, and you know, so we'll, we'll talk about structural capital. You know, that's the stuff that stays in the company after everybody, all, after all the human capital leaves. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week because we're going to share with you what we believe is probably the most significant knowledge tool ever devised by man, which is the after action review. But let's talk a little bit about social capital, Ed, because one of the things that's interesting about human capital and social capital is neither of them are owned by the company. So a knowledge firm is actually a very assetless organization. It really doesn't own the assets because you can't own human capital. <laughs> well, you can you own your own. That's it. Yeah, that's, it. That, that's right. And, and you're actually investing it into the organization. And when you think about a brand, I always ask audiences who owns Coca-Cola's brand. And, you know, if you talk to lawyers, accountants, they'll say, well, the shareholders. Well, that's true legally. But from an economic standpoint, it's obviously the customers who own the brand. Because look what happened with New Coke. Yep, they almost destroyed it. And, you know, another concept of or aspect of social capital that's very important is values that we transmit from one generation to another. Alvin Toffler used to stump and, and crack up audiences with the following question. What's it worth to your organization that your people were potty trained? <laughs> Uh, uh, a lot (laughs) that's 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 the same answer that i gave to how much does the economy weigh yeah yeah it's one of those great questions Uh, but you you know a a couple of other things to illustrate this i think very starkly is if you look at north and south korea you can obviously look at that satellite image at night where you know north korea is completely blacked out my ipad A screensaver on my iPad, too. It reminds me of this. Yep. Isn't, and, Ed, there's an even better picture, one that came out of the space station that's even more dramatic. Uh, but, you know, here, here you have two countries that are the same language, same culture, same history, and look at the dramatic difference. And I think it's because one respects freedom and dignity and liberty and, and unleashes their people to be their best. And one is it's just a tyranny of materialism and a great example of the physical fallacy. I mean, they have all the natural resources up in North Korea. They have the mines and all these natural resources, but they don't have the knowledge to get it out and do anything with it. And, and I think that is a great illustration of, of the physical fallacy versus the knowledge economy that we've been talking about. And it was only really unleashed in the South in, in around 1980. Before that, they were, you know, certainly freer, I suppose, but 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 in in some ways equally uh, oppressive. So it's only once they figured out, oh, th- this is this is what we have to do in order to to grow this, that they made the mistake. And this is a great example, Ron, of of the the negative. Uh, social, structural, and human capital. I mean, this is this is just evil. I, I just read a book uh, uh, called um, "Dear Reader," and I don't want to spend too much time on it. Although we could do a whole show on it. Uh, this is a, the unauthorized autobiography of Kim Jong Il, in which he just posits that or show, shows you how. Um, how evil the thinking is, and they're not crazy. And 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 one of the things that the author um, Michael Malice points out is that we can't, we have to stop thinking of these people as crazy. They're not crazy. There is a logic to it. They're just evil. 
Right, right. No, I've read that book too, and it was a it was a fascinating book. You're right. Uh, the other thing to, to really, if you really want a stark image of the knowledge economy, uh, I think it's President Ronald Reagan's best speech that he delivered in 1988. So, kind of towards the end of his presidency at Moscow State University, which was Mikhail Gorbachev's. You know, that's where he went to school, and he's standing in front of a bust of Lenin and a mural of of the Russian Revolution. And he's basically telling these students that your country is destined for the ash heap of history. Now, he doesn't say it that blatantly. He says it very nice, but he's explaining basically what he calls the information economy, but it's actually the knowledge economy. And he actually quotes this book that was written in 1982 called The Economy in Mind by a guy named Warren Brooks, who's no longer with us, but he's probably one of the reasons, Ed, along with George Gilder, that I wrote my book, Mind Over Matter, and probably why we're doing this show. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Ron, uh, cue us up for next week. Yeah, next week, Ed, we're going to take on what I call, or like we like to refer to as the annual agony. We're going to, folks, give you a, a proper replacement for the annual performance appraisal. Like Taylorism, we think that this is the most antiquated, anachoristic uh, device known to man, and it doesn't even work. So we're going to give you a, uh, better replacements for the annual performance appraisal next week on The Soul of Enterprise. You have been listening to The Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage One, online accounting software designed to create freedom for small businesses to succeed. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another show on replacing performance appraisals. See you in 167 hours.